This is Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello, soaring community. Welcome back to the podcast. Since we're in the holiday season, we thought it would be nice to throw in some of our best throwback episodes that some of you may not have heard. One of our favorites here at the podcast is definitely a chat with Miguel Intermende from the Perlin Project. Miguel talks about what it's like flying at super high altitudes never reached before in a glider, and he also answered some of your questions. Miguel, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Uh, happy to be here, Chuck. I think it's been a little while since we talked, but before we jump into the meat of the interview, and for the benefit of listeners that may not have heard your prior appearances here on Soaring the Sky, can you please just give us a few-minute flyover of your own aviation bio and maybe also just a brief overview of the Perlin Project? Um, sure. So I I am a glider pilot, obviously. That's one here. Um, my day job is a experimental test pilot, so I fly tests prototypes for different companies um, and my involvement with uh, the Perlan started uh, about eight, nine years ago uh, via Ed Warnock, their CEO, and Einar Ennett Bolson, the creator of, of uh, initiator of uh, Perlan, who uh, recently passed away just two weeks ago. And what I do in Perlan is I, f- I fly the, the Perlan uh, with Jim Payne and I also do engineering on it. So basically, in a nutshell, that, that's it. I'm sorry to hear about that. I, I had heard about him just a couple weeks ago. It's sad news, but I must have, I'm must. i sure it must have been you know, an honor to work with him. Oh, absolutely. A huge honor. Einar, as a test pilot, did everything. You know, is one of those uh, NASA research test pilots that uh, flew all of the X-planes and everything out there that is interesting and as a glider pilot he uh, he also did everything and of course he he flew the Perlon one to a, a world record altitude with steve fawcett in 2006 and uh, he put up you know Perlon started in in the middle of the 90s uh, 93 94 with him you know this was his project so everything that we've done in Perlon is because of because of him, his uh, guidance, his knowledge, experience, and in the last few years, his inspiration. You know, he was very involved uh, with everything. Uh, personally, he was a friend and, and somebody that would be greatly missed. And for me, it was a total privilege to be able to share the, the few years that I, that I was able to share with him. Absolutely. I'm sure some wonderful memories that you'll be able to hang on to. Most definitely, yes. From all the emails and the DMs we got, without a doubt, the biggest question on everybody's mind is, what are you guys planning for 2021, if anything? But just to keep everybody in suspense, how about we just bookmark that and we'll circle back towards towards it here at the end of the interview. But given that we have pilots from varying backgrounds and experience on the podcast, I don't think we should assume everybody's listening has a good understanding of Wavelift. Could you spend a few minutes and describe in your own words what wave lift is and also maybe perhaps elaborate a bit on the difference between lower level mountain waves, of course, and the higher level atmospheric waves you guys fly, or those higher level waves also created by the mountains way down below? 
Wow, that's a, like a four-tier question. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm about to turn 50 in a couple of months, and I, I already forgot about the first two two parts of the question. So I'll start with the most recent thing that you ask: is uh, are those mountain waves, uh, are, are the stratospheric wave created by the mountain waves? The short answer is mostly yes. So yes, you know, 90% of 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 those are created, in fact, by by the, the mountain wave that keeps expanding. And then you have, if you have a mass of air that is doing something, moving, like you have with the polar vortex in, in around the South Pole, the Antarctica, or of the polar vortex up here in the Northern Hemisphere around the Arctic, then those keep resonance up in altitude and creating that disturbance into a, a higher wave. So basically, those answer, I think, the last two questions. As far as how mountain wave is, is created, well, you need a you need some sort of obstacle. In this case, uh, mountains, a, a ridge or some sort of uh, a group of mountains, and you need a perpendicular wind. So let's, let's take in the United States the uh, Sierra Mountains, right between California and Nevada. You know, they go from just north of LA, around Mojave, Tegachapi, all the way north of, well north of uh, Reno. So a lot of a lot of times the wind between surface or just above the surface to, to about 15, 20,000 feet comes from the west. And we know that's a typical pattern, right, in the United States. The wind aloft comes from from the west towards the east. Uh, this is why uh, it takes longer to fly to LA from the east coast than, than to come back from, from the west coast to the east coast. And so this, this wind basically just runs into the mountain and it creates, it creates a disturbance you know, around the mountain and, uh, and that keeps propagating upwards you know until it hits the tropopause normally to have mountain wave or you know you will need wind that increases in in magnitude so that normally happens until you get to the tropopause right the wind at 10,000 feet could be let's say 30 knots and the wind at 20,000 feet could be 50 knots and at 30,000 feet it could be 70 knots and 35,000 feet could be 100 knots or, or higher but when you get to the tropopause the winds start to decrease. And that's normally when the mountain wave stops. So the mountain wave that you will find in the United States, around where you are, and just south of you, and in the Sierras is uh, in the troposphere. So it will it will form between five and 10,000 feet and it will go up uh, as long as those conditions that I just described continue to exist. If you had a mass of air moving above the tropopause, at faster uh, speeds, so the same increase, you know, the same slope that I just described between 10, 20, 30, 40,000 feet, that it will keep going, then the, that mountain wave will actually propagate into the stratosphere. In the world, that happens with the polar vortex. The polar vortex has higher altitude winds and higher speeds, you know that go above the tropopause. And that's why we go to Argentina, because that's one place that Southern Argentina that has this phenomenon. Absolutely. Thank you. That, that was a great answer to, to the question. Based on Perlin's results so far, and based on the years of research and thinking about this, 
What do you guys think the top altitude limit is for a glider to fly in atmospheric waves? It's a good question. You know, DLR, the research, the NASA of, of Germany, you know, they're, they're a space agency and, and aeronautic research agency, was in El Calafate in Argentina with us, and they had a G5 with a lighter underneath, right, this huge pod. And they were looking at this this mountain wave, and they they said the mountain wave goes strong well above 100,000 feet. Uh, in some cases, up to 150,000 feet, which sounds like science fiction. For a glider to fly much higher than 94, 95,000 feet will have to be a transonic into supersonic wind. And that would be hard to, to manufacture. Um, in in Perlam, we've been talking about a Perlam 3 that will do just that, you know, conquer the 100,000 feet mark. But for that, we will we will have to go well into the transonic and very close to about the speed of sound. So right now, our glider is aerodynamically uh, could go in theory to 96,000 feet. We have put a margin of 6,000 feet to just not to, to push it too much, basically. But... Um, so I guess that's your answer, you know, with, with a conventional, and by conventional, I mean with a conventional wind that has been designed for this, I think 98, 100,000 is, is possible. Anything above that, even at a, at a speed of 40 knots indicator, you'll be breaking the speed of sound. Wow. And of course, you know, you know what the center of gravity happens or a wind. And, you know, I mean, this, this becomes a huge, huge problem. Yeah. Going back to our interview a year and a half ago or so, you had mentioned that the year was kind of a bust in terms of altitudes achieved, largely because of that historically huge 30-plus warming of certain layer of atmosphere and breaking up of the polar vortex that summer. Can you update listeners what happened in 2020 and what is predicted for 2021 relative to the atmospheric conditions down there in Argentina? Sure. So for 2021, I'm not sure because we we talked about this in one of the last meetings we have, and we were waiting to get an update from Dr. Elizabeth Austin, our scientist uh, meteorologist. Um, As far as uh, 2020 last year, something similar happened, but it, it wasn't as pronounced and as sharp as 2019. Um, the thing is that the only people in that part of the world that was collecting data was us. So whatever I'm telling you, I'm not 100% sure because it's not like you have people flying 50 to 100,000 feet that south near Antarctica, you know. So uh, because we did in 2019, we have all these very accurate measurements of what was happening on the atmosphere. On 2020, what we have is more of a model. So the model indicated that similar problems were happening, but not as sharp. How accurate that is, is hard to tell because nobody's flying radio sounds and balloons over there to gather these measurements. Right, exactly. Reaching back again to our last chat, one of the topics that listeners found most fascinating was your technical explanations of stall speed, b the amount of lift needed at high altitudes to actually get positive climbing. Just all that, even for pilots that maybe you're flying during the summer here in the U.S. and maybe they're getting up to 17 or 18,000 feet. They might wonder why their Varia shows two knots of lift, but their altimeter isn't moving too much. Yeah, sure. Uh, You know, the the rule of thumb for any pilot is that, you know, you, you need one extra knot 
on your burial for every 10,000 feet to create enough lift for you to maintain some sort of climb. Okay, uh, this is a rule of thumb. The, the science behind is it's a little more of uh, you know a longer explanation than that. But if you need if you need one one and a half knot to have that one and a half knot climb at sea level to have that one and a half knot at 10,000 feet, you're gonna need two and a half. And at 20,000 is gonna be three and a half to get that one and a half and so on. And the reason is simple. I mean, you're trying, you're flying indicator aerospeed, but that indicator aerospeed translates to a higher true aerospeed. So basically the air is thinner. You need more speed to, more molecules going faster over your airfoil to maintain the required lift to do whatever it is that you need to do. In this case, we're talking about climbing, you know, excess energy to climb. So basically that's that's the reason. You know, thin air means that, you know, your indicator speed of 50 knots at sea level is 50 knots. 50 knots at 90,000 feet, like parallel flight, is closer to 400 knots. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so for Berlin, Berlin needs needs about, uh, uh, you know, eight or nine knots to, to climb uh, you know, crazy. In, in those altitudes, just just to get anything. So, so it, yeah. And the show is proud to announce yet another new sponsor. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for more than 30 years now. They have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplanes and soaring supplies in the U.S., Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. They are proud to be the exclusive American representative for HPH LTD, manufacturer of the finest quality sailplanes. The HPH Twin Shark is the newest 20-meter two-place sailplane on the market and arriving in North America this spring. Their staff has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call. Located in Eagle, Idaho, Wings and Wheels has a new commercial building with warehouse built to their specifications and completed in 2021. Whether shipping domestic or international, your soaring-related supply list is covered. Come visit them next time you are in the Boise area. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. And through the end of May, if you use the promo code POD2021, you'll get a free 8-inch sailplane decal with your order. We're stoked to have them on board the pod and thank them for their support. As for the glider itself, what are some of the more subtle technical details that listeners and pilots of all stripes might find unusual or interesting? For instance, do you guys use a special type of gel coat or poly coating to deal with the extreme temperatures, or is it really just the same finish that you'd find on any regular modern glass glider? Yeah, so so really the, the most, you know, going back to your question of uh, the gel coat, we don't use gel coat. Gel coat doesn't do great on high altitude. Uh, reason is because, you know, humidity gets behind it, and then that freezes, and it expands, and it cracks, and it breaks. And okay. you don't want to lose that during the fly. The most unique part, uh, Chuck, about uh, the Perline is is the airfoil is designed for high altitude for low Reynolds numbers. So our glider doesn't fly really well low at altitude. Okay, you know, yeah. it flies well when it's at at high altitude. You know, so it's designed with that in mind. Uh, the other thing that is very unique about our glider is that it's a pressurized glider and it's, it's, it's the only pressurized glider in history. There was a Canadian uh, project 
in the 1980s that they tried to pressurize a glider. And I think in Wikipedia, they said that it could pressurize to two PSI differential. But talking to the people that did it, they said that they never got it to, to do that. So Perlan is the only pressurized glider. And then the life support system is, is very unique. It's very close to a spacecraft. But even for a spacecraft, it's unique. So we survive inside the Perlan creating two different atmospheres. One is the one that pressurizes your tissue, you know, your body, uh, which is based on dry air. So it has 21% oxygen and it's the same air you're breathing right now. It's just being dehumidified, basically. But we don't breathe that. We breathe in a closed loop inside of a rebreather where we're breathing 95 to 99% oxygen. And whatever we exhale, that CO2 goes back into the uh, into the closed loop through the mask. It doesn't go into the cabin. It gets, uh, it gets clean fr- uh, from the CO2 and it goes back into your lungs. So we, we keep rebreathing the same oxygen, but it's never mix with the with the air that we use to pressurize our our body those things i think are the most unique the way the aircraft flights is is you know it's similar to any other glider other than it's a lot heavier and it's not a great aircraft to to do thermals on you know it's made for way flying uh it's just way too heavy to do and we we catch thermals now and then with with the parallel but that's that's not what it's meant to right do, you know? it's <laughs> it's really tiring in such a heavy controls uh, there's a lot of friction in the system in the flight control system so speaking of the glider it looks like it has a main fixed gear doesn't that add loads of unwanted drag or how does that work out yeah so if we calculated the um the drag that that creates and basically kills the l over d by like one you know oh, okay. maybe one and a half so in instead of being you know uh, 44 to one is 42 to one which is kind of what the parallel is the reason this is not important to us chuck is because you know the amount of engineering we needed to make to clean that up then you have to put the gear somewhere and the parallel inside is is very much like a space capsule it is full with the screams and avionics you're laying down inside and you have these very small windows you know oval windows that you look through that get completely frozen and then you can't see anything and we really don't have any space to put the entire wheel and retract it inside the the pressurized hole you know that's the main reason okay i gotcha yeah yeah that makes sense Okay, we're going to move over to some of the listeners submitted questions. And to those of you who took the time to reach out, thank you so much. We here at the pod want to do more of this community generated content in future episodes. And again, we do have a brand new tool on the website where you can leave us a recorded message and share your stories or recent flights, anything. So make sure you check that out. If you leave us a recording, chances are pretty high you're probably going to end up on the podcast. All right. So the first listener question is given how narrow the band between stall and VNE is at super high altitudes. Do you guys have an autopilot system or some such that helps keep you out of danger way up there? Uh, no, no autopilot whatsoever. It flies identical to any any of your gliders. Um, and as far as how um, how wide is the coffin corner, not very not not uh, very wide, but not narrow either. Uh, there's quite a bit of uh, 
quite a bit of uh, distance, uh, something like around six knots. Six knots doesn't sound like a lot, but to change a knot in a speed at that altitude takes a lot of energy. So it's quite it's quite generous. It's not like the SR-71 or even the U-2 where it's super narrow. You know, for us, we left quite a bit of margin when we designed the Perlin. Okay, nice. What tools do you use to determine where the best areas of lift are going to be? Or do you have tools and instruments on board that help you navigate to different or new areas in real time? Yeah, so both. The answer is both. Uh, let's talk about the ground. Okay. On the ground, what we do is we send a couple of balloons each day radio sounds and we collect all that data and we enter it into a model. We built a model and then we run that model through some uh, uh, supercomputers that have been donated from Intel and other manufacturers. And we built a model when we think the lift is from the wave. That gets updated over and over and over. And then just before we fly, we basically have a map that is something like 50 miles by 50 miles. And we have waypoints, you know, uh, that go from north to south and they go from east to west. So they're like rows of waypoints, like uh, four rows and each of them are seven or eight waypoints. And then we put the image of where we think the lift is and we go there. Can that be updated from the ground? Uh, yes and no. In some years, no. Right now we're working on updating that through satellite. Okay. Uh, Definitely updated on the ground all the time. And then the ground will, through telemetry and through radio communications, will tell us, go to Lima 5. And we know Lima 5 is whatever waypoint we have. And we go there and try that. So it's kind of interactive um, from the information we already run in the cockpit and the information they're giving us from the ground. Because sometimes from the time that we take off to the time that we're hitting these waypoints, Two, three hours have gone by, and there is an updated model. Okay, the next listener question is, how does the glider handle? Can you compare it to something more common down here close to the Earth? Yeah, so, I, you know, Chuck, let me, let me say for your listeners that I am a relatively uh, inexperienced glider pilot. Okay, uh, I have roughly 350 hours, 370 hours of, of glider time, and I've flown about maybe 18, 20 different gliders. Um, to me, it handles close to whatever 20 meters gliders that are out there, you know, something like, uh, okay, and, and anything heavy. So like an Arcus, maybe a little bit, but heavier than that. Uh, laterally on the ailerons, uh, it's pretty heavy directionally uh, heavy, but not super heavy, but on the heavy side. And longitudinally, the pitch is not very heavy. It's not light either. It's not like a single-seater 15-meter glider, but proportionally, definitely the ailerons is is where you have to put that elbow grease and and go like, you know, (laughs) really, really when you're doing that, you go like, wow, this will not thermal well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but, But the closest thing, will be a 20 meter glider that weights, you know, 13, 1400 pounds, you know. And and that's a lot of work if you're up there doing all that flying. So I think we had talked a little before that you guys switched back and forth, right? Uh, we switched controls. Most of the fly is done from the front because, uh, you know, quite frankly, there's almost no visibility from the back. But once that you're in the air, uh, 
normally uh, the pilot up front will fly maybe 75% of the flight, sometimes more, maybe okay. 80%. Okay. So when he needs to take a break every 20, 30 minutes, the guy on the back takes the airplane for five or 10 minutes. And then, you know, in definitely the landing is almost impossible to do from the back seat. Okay. I would say it's, it's, it's mostly a safety thing. You don't want to do that unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Miguel, on a flight, say 75,000 feet, how long in the air would you typically be on a day like that? I think there's a typical flight uh, as far as hours, but I would say most of the flights are between four and a half and seven hours. Okay, wow. So so five, six hours, you know, compared to the flights that we do in on WAVE in, in the Sierra here in the United States, they're short flights, uh, but they're not, they're not a short flight you know they're, they're not two or three hours you know, yeah I, I would say that nothing under four and a half and uh, above seven we start having issues with with the battery uh, running low okay yeah not super low but you know you you, you want to be coming down after seven hours yeah so a follow-up on that question related to being stuck in that tiny cockpit for a long time what do you guys do with the whole urination thing and Hopefully you wouldn't have anything else to worry about when you're up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you want to have Mexican food uh, just before uh, uh, you know, <laughs> happy, happy Cinco de Mayo to any any of our Mexican listeners. So basically we have a system. We have two systems that you can use. One, uh, and I use both of them, uh, I really... I think I think the low tech system is my preference, which is a, a, a half gallon inside of a half gallon, uh, you know, bag, okay. uh, sandwich bag, and, uh, and and then you just relieve yourself there, close both of them, and put it to your side, yeah, and then it will freeze, you know, right. after twenty minutes, it's a it's a block of ice. Um, and that's the low tech. The high tech is something that uh, one of our sponsors gave us, which is a, a, a it works incredibly well. Basically, it's a catheter with a tube and a liter motor and a, a half liter bag, actually one liter bag, uh, and you put it around your um, on your leg, basically with a, like a like a strap, and then it senses when you want to go and it starts sucking, you know, basically suction and uh, brings the urine into the bag and you just leave until after the flight you guys have a lot of gear on it's not like your normal obviously your normal glider flight so no we have electrical clothing uh, three layers of clothing uh, uh i you know we look like the michelin uh, men you know uh, yeah. the helmet <laughs> the, the rebreather gear it, it it you look like an astronaut that is going to mars you know it's it's quite quite a lot and quite uncomfortable to be honest so another listener question they actually wanted to know a little bit about the tow plane i guess it isn't your run-of-the-mill pony right yeah so we we use one uh, you know a couple of years we use uh you know basically a, a version of a pony um and that worked out well we were able to to break the world record with with that and go over 50,000 feet. But the problem is that it takes so long to to climb between 10,000 and, and the stratospheric wave, which normally starts around 42, 44,000 feet, that um, it, it, it going then from 50-something to, to 90, it will make the flight 10 hours long and very, very, very tiring. 
so we, we got the help of um, a group uh, uh, egret. And the Grop Egret is just a motor glider, basically. You know, it's a, it's a big turboprop, single engine with 110, 114 feet wingspan that uh, flies very slow. And uh, we created a towing system for that, installed it, and it towed us to 40, 45,000 feet, one time to 48,000 feet, which is the highest tow ever yeah. <laughs> in history, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's a big tow. How long does it take to get up to that height usually? Um, you know, roughly it's a thousand feet a minute. Uh, at the end, it's more like five hundred feet a minute, so it could it could take you know forty five, fifty minutes. Okay. If you guys got into an emergency up there, do you have the ability to bail out from the capsule, or is there like a whole ship parachute? How does that work? It, it, there's a BRS, uh, a ballistic recovery uh, system, that will bring the whole airplane down as a capsule basically oh wow so no there there is no way to bail out we don't even carry pass, uh, parachutes because it sounds well in theory but in reality it will be almost impossible the the, the perlan you you have so much gear on top of you you have this this hatch you know on top of you right and it's not something that you can just get up and go it, yeah it, it doesn't it's not the same setup as a normal glider yeah what with the recent flight of a drone copter on Mars, I'm not sure if you've seen that, but have you guys ever thought about the possibility of flying yeah. a drone glider on another planet like Mars? Yeah, so one of the one of the pitch uh, ideas to to NASA and Airbus was the uh, the fact that Perlan could fly in Mars. You know, the their density at ninety thousand feet is roughly two percent of what it is at sea level which is identical to, to Mars. And the temperatures were flying negative 70 or so. Uh, it, they're also very similar to Mars. So in theory, if you can fly at 90,000 feet, you could fly Mars and you could, in theory, land in Mars with a glider. Wow. So there's, there's been a lot of discussions uh, over the years with them. And recently, uh, I think two days ago, I think uh, NASA and Airbus put uh, a tweet I believe, or or a post on on Facebook talking about this Perlan, Perlan flying in Mars as a as a possibility one day, you know, nice. which is of course nothing nothing for real, but just they were alluding, I think, to the the, the possibility that that Perlan in theory could do that. You know. Oh, that is very cool. What has it been like working with Jim Payne, and are there notable people on the project team you want to give a shout out to or take a moment to recognize here on the podcast? Yeah, sure. Uh, working with Jen has been absolutely fantastic. I, I don't think I learned more from any other pilot or test pilot in my career. So, you know, just the best experience. Um, yeah, I, I learned from a lot of the guys in the project. Ed Warnock, the CEO, has been a big engine uh, behind Perlin. You know, um, the, you know, of course, Hainer. Uh, it goes without saying, right? This is his project. Uh, Morgan Satterkock, uh, he he designed most of, of what goes inside the Perlan. You know, uh, not only an excellent pilot, but incredible engineer. Uh, so many people, Dr. Austin, uh, Elizabeth Austin, who, who does the science for Perlan. Uh, Tim Garner, another another pilot that an engineer that that flies with us. You know, Perlan is a group of of 30, 40 people plus another 30, 40 volunteers that without them, it would have been impossible to, to do it. You know, so it, the merit is 100% into these peoples. 
uh, abilities and dedication. Yeah, that's a big team to get all that done. Yeah, it's a it's a big project. I mean, if if you talk about uh, taking a glider to ninety thousand feet, sounds absolutely like science fiction. And uh, right. we have we have several uh, occasions where we could uh, keep climbing, but you know, this uh, safety first, uh, expanding the envelope uh, uh, step by step, uh, it, it's taking longer than if we would have just gone to ninety thousand feet, but. Uh, I want your, uh, you and your listeners to know that, that we could have done that in any of the flights. In other words, the maximum altitude for each test flight doesn't have to do with the wave that day. It has to do with the limits we put for the flight. And they've been a step-by-step instead of... So in other words, when we went to 76,000 feet that day, the uh, gym and team could have kept climbing and, and get to 90,000 feet that day. You know? Wow, but due to safety, you kept it, they kept it at that altitude. Well, yeah, we're we're clearing the envelope, the flatter envelope, the flight dynamics envelope, uh, five thousand feet at a time. So, you know, yeah, same thing. The next flight won't be to ninety thousand feet. When we get to Argentina, we will we will the next step will be eighty or eighty-two thousand feet. You know? uh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, Miguel. Now for the question everybody's wondering about: What is the plan, if any, for twenty twenty-one and beyond? And what is the, in the future cards for the Perlin project? The team, the ship, all that. Yeah, so Chuck, the uh, the team is an all volunteer team, um, and we uh, you know we get funded through donations. You know, so we're collecting donations for uh, for 2021, and we're hoping we're about 70 percent or so funded. And uh, for 2022, I'm sorry, <laughs> for 2021, unfortunately, <laughs> South America uh, uh, is being hit by COVID very very. Heart and Argentina is right in the middle of uh, a wave, and uh, we we canceled 2021 uh, due to COVID. You know, right. while we were yeah. pretty confident that the United States by July will be pretty close to COVID free, and and it it looks that way. Uh, certainly, is not the case with with South America and with Argentina, and uh, hopefully they'll be uh, where we are in a few months, but it will be too late for us because uh, for us to be there in 2021, the gliders would have left in April and we will be right now almost packing our personal belongings to to head down uh, south and and that's not possible. For 2022, uh, we have projects to maybe go to Canada and fly a stratospheric wave there. Uh, This is all very... uh, in the planning state, and we would like to go to Argentina as well. If we have enough budget and there's no COVID, uh, that's the plan for 2022. Okay, and now, Miguel, it's time for our lightning round. This is kind of a fun little thing we do, question and answer. If there's one of the questions that you want to pass on, you're welcome to pass. If not, you can answer the question, then we'll go on to the next one. What do you think? Um, Sure. If I can answer the question in less than 10 seconds, I will. If not, I'll pass. Sounds good. <laughs> if you have to go a little a little longer, that's fine. Okay, Always I'll interesting give, to. I'll give it a try. Okay. There's some questions you understand that that is hard to to do less than two or three minutes. So that's that's what I meant. I got you. Yeah, but I, I'll give it a shot. Okay, here we go. What's the heaviest item in your landout or emergency kit? Uh, an axe. Which extremity gets the coldest for you up there? Is it your hands, your feet, your face, or all of the above? Definitely uh, your feet. Front seat or rear seat? 
Uh, for me, uh, I've been flying on the rear seat. Uh, all of the systems on the aircraft uh, get control from the rear, and you need two pilots to do this. Um, but uh, I hope to fly on the front. I'll ask Jim about it. <laughs> <laughs> Single scariest moment aboard the Perlin ship. Equipment malfunction, huge turbulence through rotor, sketchy landing conditions, or none of the above? Uh None of the above, uh, probably, you know, probably uh, during test flight, uh, one of the test flights we were uh, doing something called a wind amp turn and um, it was hard, to, you know, the loads were so high, it was hard to get it out of. Uh, I wouldn't say it was super scary, but it took it took a lot more muscle than we thought to, to get the airplane out of the flight condition. Oh, wow. The thing that most has your mind preoccupied on flight day morning. The weather isn't going to cooperate. Jim was eating a lot of breakfast burritos and you're going to be sitting behind <laughs> for five hours. <laughs> or, you, <laughs> or you worry that something isn't just quite right with the glider or the instruments. Uh, mostly out of those three, the first one, definitely. Okay. <laughs> Outside of the Perlin world, what is your favorite glider to fly for recreation or cross country? For recreation, I mean, this is very uh, unpopular answer, but I, I like flying the uh, PW5. I have one, and it's such a tiny okay. ship uh, here for Florida. We have tiny thermals, and uh, there's lots of them, but tiny, and the airplane does very well recreational. I love flying uh, Wave on the Arcos with, with Tim or Jim. Um, because uh, it's such a stable, fast, you know, glider. So very responsive. What is your favorite soaring related book? Um, <laughs> I'll pass. Okay. <laughs> What's the coolest soaring related video or YouTube you've seen lately? Well, uh, I don't have one. I Somebody just sent me a, a video of bad landings uh, of the YouTube. You know, I don't know if you ever right. seen this. It is hilarious. It's I. I mean, I, I saw it probably fifteen times. You know, uh, I. I would say that in the video, which is three minutes long and is like a video clip, they uh, right. they arrest the pilot on his uh, pressurized suit, astronaut suit, at the end for being a bad pilot. You know, and uh, I don't know who in the military <laughs> did this, but uh, Google U two U two bad landings or something like that. Somebody sent it to me. Uh, since the U-2 is a big glider, I, I will go with that one. You were flying around in a place with verdant farmland and gentle rolling hills. You have to land out. Slight uphill with 15 knot tailwind or slight downhill with 15 knot headwind. <laughs> bad choice or bad choice uh, the problem with the tailwind is that you're not going to have a lot of controls over over the elevator so i guess the second one okay but not not really uh you gave me two bad choices <laughs> well you, yeah. you can thank my co-producer for that one emergency you have two options jump out with a parachute or land in a lake Again, two bad options, but uh, I would say probably land on on, on the lake. Um, I, you know, I, one thing as a test pilot, the, the very first thing when I get to a, a, a new project is I always make them install things that will help me get out of my seat and jump. I just did it with Solar Impulse. 
and and I did it before with Solar Stratos. And they look at me like, why is this guy want all of these things? Because you know, the 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 getting up and getting your canopy out or whatever you need to do, and jumping out of the plane, you know. I, you, we all rehearse it how it will be. I just don't know that I'd be capable of doing it or not. I hope I would. You know, <laughs> right. if, if 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 part of the, you know, if you lose a win or something like that, part of or, or the tail, you're gonna have to do it. But it's it's it, it looks to me like a very complicated maneuver. Landing on a lake uh, could be f- very fatal if you don't do it right. And for example, in El Calafate, the lake, Lake uh, Lago Argentino, uh, the temperature is. Uh, 34 degrees Fahrenheit. So mm. even if you are able to land there, you're probably going to die within seven, ten minutes. You know, because nobody's oh, yeah, going to be able to 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 re, uh, recover you in, in less time. And um, so, yeah, it's so not going to take two, long. Two, two bad choices. I I don't like the idea as a <laughs> pilot of ever jumping out of a, a flying airplane. So I know, right? <laughs> if looking for good lift, would you rather follow a raven, a vulture, or an eagle? I don't know. <laughs> like I told, <laughs> maybe an eagle. Okay. You know, a- anything with a good, decent wingspan. Uh, like I told your listeners in the beginning, I'm, I'm uh, fairly, uh, you know, uh, only, what, 13 years flying gliders. I'm, I don't have that many hours. Um, here in Florida, it's a great indication. You look for birds. Uh, that's what I do on a, on a blue day, you know. Right, yeah. But uh, out of those ones, I don't know which ones will be best. Bucket hat, cap, bandana, or stocking cap? <laughs> None of them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 15 meter, 18 meter, or 25 meters? 18. For more vintage ships, metal gliders or wood? Metal gliders. I mean, you know, you you can't, you have never met anybody that hated an L-13 or an L-23. Right. They just fly, fun to fly, easy. Vario sound in sync or quiet? Um, no, I'd rather hear when I'm in sync. It's not as pleasurable, yeah. but <laughs> spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? Uh, for me, they have to be a little open because if you need them, uh, when you need them, you want to make sure they they can get out out of the out of the lock position. So for me, I I, I will get them maybe ten percent out. You know. Yeah. More, more if I need to, but but uh, it's better it's better to use them uh, when they're absolutely needed, not before. But they have to be out of the locked position. Paper checklist or mnemonic? Paper checklist. Last time you looked at the compass. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, my last fly with Solar Impulse, I had an EMI problem, and it was serious. And I used the compass, and I have to admit that. Somebody else told me, "Oh, we're. I think we're coming to you for a compass, uh, you know, rose uh, check." I'm like, "Oh, I never look at those things anyway." <laughs> and what do you know? Three days later, I was I was looking at the compass because right. I, I, had, I had EMI bad enough where my two Garmin's uh, 3X or G3X, whatever they call, were were showing the the wrong the wrong heading, both of them, big time, oh, wow. 40, 50 degrees off. Wow. It was, it was real bad. It was BFR, so I just looked outside and <laughs> I knew where I was the whole time, you know. But yeah. uh, but I was looking at the compass, yeah. Tie down for the night or stuff it in a trailer every time, no matter what? Well, if you fly from Minden, maybe uh, you put it on the trailer, but I'm not. Depends where you are, I guess. 
Yeah. Gatorade or water in summer flights? Gatorade. Favorite single instrument in the cockpit? The altimeter. <laughs> if you don't have anything else, it's not a bad thing to have. Yeah, Earth right. speed indicator, I guess, but you can hear your, you can hear the wind. You yeah, know, if right. you fly a lot on that glider, yeah, then then you catch yourself not looking at the airspeed indicator. But. Tinted canopy or clear? Uh, clear. Gin and tonic, Corona beer, craft IPA, red wine, white wine, scotch, or iced tea? Red wine, without a doubt. Nice. Steak, salmon, fried chicken, or garden salad? Steak. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Miguel, we were talking a, a little bit before we started recording this, and you were talking about what you're doing right now as as your job as a test pilot. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Um, so uh, I'm flying three different prototypes, and they're all basically gliders, motor gliders. Uh, one of them... Uh, I can't comment the, the one in the United States, but the ones in Europe, uh, one is called the Solar Stratos, and the Solar Stratos is uh, is a motor glider. You know, it's a tandem seat motor glider um, made made uh, uh, with you know with the purpose of flying high into the stratosphere, and uh, it has an LOBD of uh, 32 over one. Um, so far, I mean, the, the designer claims is uh, 38 over one, but I, I haven't seen that. Um, and uh, it has solar cells on top and uh, it weighs, what is it, in pounds? About 1,400 pounds, 1,450, something like that. Oh, wow. uh, lots lots of fun to fly. It's extremely low wind loading, about 3.8 pounds per square feet. So about half of what a normal glider is. Wow. Um, and I'll be flying that again in about two weeks, actually less than two weeks. And the other one is the Solar Impulse, which is um, uh, the aircraft that went around the world with a wind span of uh, 240 feet. Wow. Four engines, electric engines, uh, single seater, uh, single wheel. Um, so you, you balance it like, like a glider. And anybody can Google uh, a video of this, just put Solar Impulse 2. And it's pretty interesting because you fly like a glider. Basically, you have uh, air brakes. And um, the way I fly it, basically, is uh, I put the engines uh, uh, on dock. So I stop the engines and then I, I just treat it like a glider. You know? oh, nice. And when you touch down, you have to balance it. So you got 240 feet uh, of wind and a, and a single tire that is, oh, I don't know, about 14 inches in height and eight inches wide. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe le maybe less. And you have to balance that, you know. And uh, the wind loading is extremely low. It's less than two pounds per square feet. So, um, so basically, to me, I, I use my gliding skills to, to fly these two aircraft because that's what they are. They're gliders. They're motor gliders. Yeah. Um, and, and even when the motor is running, uh, the atmosphere really does uh, affect you in a big way because um, the wind loading is so, so low and you have so much wind that uh, any any thermals, any sink uh, really does a number on your flight trajectory, you know, uh, to the point that it becomes very hard to control. You know? So you're really feeling it, obviously, then? Oh, yeah, you, you feel it, yes. 
<laughs> you feel uh, you feel it way more than you wish you would. Uh, you know, most most of the test flights of both airplanes are done uh, one, two, three hours before sunrise, and then I land. Oh, interesting. Within an hour, an hour or two after sunrise. Yeah, it's it's to come up, to have a calm atmosphere. You know, uh, last. Uh, uh, not sun, not this last Sunday, but April 18th, I was able to set a, a, a world altitude record with uh, Solar Impulse as well. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Yep. It was a fun flight. Almost three hours long. And is that, is it a, is it a self-launch? How does it take off just with the, with the engine? The Solar Impulse, yeah, it's a, it's a normal motor glider. You know, you have four engines. Uh, it's the size of a 747, so this thing is, is gigantic. Yeah. And uh, and they run the wind for you. That's the only difference. You know? Okay. Uh, with So they they uh, they have the, 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 the wind is um, about 14 feet high or so, something like that. So they have these poles, kind of like the U2, you know, and somebody underneath, with a scooter runs the wind for you. Oh, wow. There's some interesting videos you can see on the internet. And then when you land, they catch you just like, like a glider okay. because you don't, you don't want to drop the wind. Right. Um, so, and then you balance, you balance it with, with your engines uh, to try to, and with the speed forward without touching the brakes. So the wind doesn't drop on you because this thing is so, massively big on the solar stratos the one in switzerland is um, it has uh, a landing gear fixed landing gear with two wheels so it's like a normal um, tail tail dragger okay so there's no yeah. need for that you still have to be careful because the wheelbase is um, i don't know five six feet wide and and the wind span is something like 90 feet so um obviously it'd be very very easy to to put the the wind tip into the into the ground even wow. though you have a, a proper landing gear like uh, you can call it wow well sounds like you're having fun yeah it it, it certainly is better than having a, a cubicle job <laughs> yeah right <laughs> miguel thank you so much for joining us had a lot of fun talking with you and i know the listeners really enjoyed it thanks thanks again for taking your time out i'm sure we'll be chatting with you again Sure. We'd love to, to tell you about uh, Perlan uh, when we're getting ready for 2022. And as soon as COVID allows us, uh, we'll be uh, back doing interesting stuff outside of the United States with it. Absolutely. And make sure you tell the team, the listeners said hello. and We'll, we'll definitely do. We're keeping an eye on it and it's exciting stuff. Thank you so much, Chuck. Thank you, Miguel. Author and glider pilot Dale Masters joins us right now for another Soaring Tales with Dale, and this one's titled Eagle Eyes. The first time I soared with an eagle, it was in a region where eagles are rare, in a blue thermal where I expected nothing. So I decided to just follow along and see what else it could teach me. Several times, this eagle left good lifts sooner than I expected and quickly found more nearby. We meandered across two big mountains to the edge of our local area before I lost my nerve and turned back. I would have liked to log an hour of duel, but that maestro probably didn't hold the current CFI. 
during those years of soaring only in New England, I read a lot of mumbo about shear lines, but had never experienced one. Turns out shear lines, as we know them in western deserts, are rather there too. And for years, I was just a curious skeptic. Then one late afternoon, I found two osprey, also known as fish eagles, cruising straight up the middle of the valley, maintaining attitude while hardly ever flapping their wings. I followed for miles, curious what was keeping us up. Then a single wispy cue formed directly ahead, and it began to make sense. Cool mountain air was flowing down from both sides of the valley and converging in the middle. A textbook example of catabatic lift. What I have to wonder is, how was that the only time I saw this in 16 years soaring there? How many times did it occur in the open valley, unmarked, while I was scratching for thermals over the hills? At a different place, where eagles are common, we'd observed two fledglings playing together for several weeks. And on a day off, I brought my camera hunting in the mountains. It took longer to catch them than to find them. And I thought that was the fun part until, to my amazement, they widened out and let me ease 126 in between them. Imagine thermaling to 12,000 feet with an eagle off each wing. If their mother were watching, would she have been horrified? And if so, then what? Three times I've been attacked by eagles after getting too cozy. And in each case, they flew away first, almost out of sight, then home straight back in nose to nose. One came so close I could see its eyes from the back seat as it passed under. We had a video cam mounted on the forward panel, and I held position as long as I could before pulling up. Of course, the film ran out just before that. Another place, as the only glider pilot, at a ride operation in a summer resort, I had the liberty of flying approaches any way I chose. A pair of bald eagles had their nest on the broken top of the polished pine near the airport, a perfect spot to dive from downwind leg, cut a 2G turn around the nest, and pull up into a normal base. Passengers always loved that, and the eagles didn't seem to mind either. Of course, they were gone from the nest most of the day. Oddly, in two full seasons there, I never once spotted either of them aloft, which implies their daily range was likely much bigger than mine. Aerox, number one in portable and engineered oxygen systems your source for FAA-approved oxygen mask and portable oxygen systems. Aerox now introduces the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use. The Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. Aerox engineered for aviators welcome back to the podcast glad to have you david chuck it's always good to be here hey you are down at the club nationals actually right now in glider port there in benton tennessee correct that is correct beautiful chill highway glider port awesome so tell me a little bit about the event well this is the club class nationals and the winner will be the national champion of the club class and eligible to compete in world gliding competitions as the u.s representative very cool so how was your practice day? Uh, yesterday was a practice day. It was overcast. 
it was overcast all day. And my uh, glider is right next to one of our current national champions, Daniel Sazen. And he was eager to go. And he went up uh, as the first toe on the cloudy day to get some practice. And uh, about five minutes later, he was back on the ground. So it was not a great soaring day. However, later in the day, we had a little peak of sunshine for about uh, maybe a half hour. And the contest weatherman said, if the sun comes out, uh, the, the air is unstable enough that we will likely have some good soaring. So I managed to wait until the sun came out and had about an hour's flight before the sky clouded over and shut down again. So that was my practice day. Oh, nice. Okay. And what are you flying? I am flying Matt Bates's LS4 One Romeo, uh, familiar to anybody at the Cumberland Soaring Group. Yes, with its lovely fish scale decorative uh, symbols on it. Yes, right. <laughs> well, I'm try- I think it's fish scales. We're we're puzzling over what the what the decoration is, but I, I'm I'm <laughs> sticking with fish scales. Now you have some tough competition there, of course. World champion Sarah Arnold. I understand she'll be competing as well. World champion Sarah Arnold has her lovely label. And she took a couple toes yesterday and on the practice day. Uh, so, yes, I think it's a very tough field. Very nice. Now, can you tell me a little bit about the train, the area you're going to be flying in? Uh, eastern Tennessee is the land of mountains. The Smoky Mountains are maybe 50 miles away. And Chilhowee Mountain rises over 2,000 feet above the glider port, just about two miles to the east. So it's very uh, strong terrain relief. But down in the valley where the glider port is, it's pretty friendly as far as uh, land out options and so forth. In fact, the glider port itself sits in the middle of a turf farm. It's a it's a grass strip and uh, all around it is farm turf, but the, they don't they don't farm the turf on the glider strip. But as you can imagine, it's very landable. OK, so the course itself, are you do you, do you know what the course is yet or is that something later? Or how does that? Work? Uh, well, it'll change every day. But they've they've shared the turn point database, and they'll pick the course from among the the established turn points, and they range all over eastern Tennessee, from here up to Knoxville, and and down over to Chattanooga, uh, and maybe beyond, I guess, depending on the weather. I don't think they task as much to the east, which would be into the mountains, because there is uh, it's very rugged and not a lot of places to land. Yeah, the Smokies are are, are rugged for sure. It's a tough field. A lot of really really good sticks here. And I'll be happy uh, to uh, to get around every day. Oh, it should be fun. David, thank you so much. It's good to get an update there in Tennessee. And I'll definitely be checking back with you when things wind down to hear how everything went. Thanks, Chuck. Always good talking to you. Sasson's here. You want to talk to him? Yeah, if we can get get some words from him. That'd let be me, uh, let me, he had his face full of barbecue here, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, let me check. Okay. Hang on. All right, I was successful. Here he is. Hello, Chuck. Daniel, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I am in Chihaui, had a wonderful dinner, and now I'm looking at uh, the line of trailers and uh, the beautiful sun starting to set. <laughs> Very nice. Sounds like it's going to be an awesome event. Indeed. Indeed. You know, but uh, it's a little bit of a slow start, you know, a little bit of rain, things like that, but uh, I, I don't mind. I, I'm appreciating the rest. <laughs> So, so what are you going to be flying in? I am flying in Aero Club Albatross's uh, LS4, uh, Alpha Charlie Alpha. Uh, so the club was gracious to lend me the glider, and uh, that's going to be the glider I shall fly. 
So can you tell yep. me a little bit about the competition there and and how you think that's going to go with the terrain? How do you feel about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, with the terrain, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, somewhat, it's, you know, it's certainly along the Appalachians, right? So it's, uh, it's not too different from where I fly or Mifflin Ridge Soaring. You know, they, they got a beautiful 20-mile-long mountain uh, right up here. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, just like what you normally have with uh, ridge countries, the fields are not great, but they're they're fairly plentiful in, around here. Um, and, and then, you know, and then, then along the valley, then there's pretty decent thermals. Uh, but again, you know, similar to what you would get anywhere along the Appalachians. So, and for like sometimes the weather can be quite good, but then other times it's can be low, weak, blue, and scratchy. But you know, that's what it's like flying around here. Well, it sounds like there's some co- tough competition down there as well. Not that, mm-hmm. not that you're not some tough competition yourself. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I I, uh, I I if I uh, manage to go and survive the two thirds, uh, the first two thirds of the contest without landing out, or at least landing out in days that everyone else is. Uh, land you know on days that where everyone makes it around you know then i'll, I'll be happy you know that's uh so it's, it's uh but uh yeah we do have a couple of you know some you know so a bunch of really great folks i mean the the contest pool is not that large but the uh the the characters here are quite good you know you have sarah arnold and tom holler and mike westbrook just to name a few uh, that are, you know, certainly very strong pilots. So it'll be very, very fun flying with them and seeing what they do. But, uh, up-and-coming pilots, you know, like Jacob and um, Jacob Fairburn and Tony and, and, and many more. It's uh, though no disrespect to some of the other names here. These, those are just uh, the folks that most easily come to the top of my mind because uh, I know them the most. Well, it yeah. sounds like it should be a fun event, and we will be checking back t- with you, of course, because I know you have a new blog. So, so uh, yeah. Well, I'll be. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to write uh, every day. Uh, I mean, my, Mitch Hudson is doing the the, the formal contest reporting. You know, so you know, he'll be telling you guys about you know all the you know like you know what the, what the task was, what the weather was, you know what you know kind of the the contest reporting. I like to you know write about my own experiences and the kinds of you know sorts of you know highlighting certain elements so you know they're they're kind of you know i, I highly encourage you and your readers uh, and listeners rather to uh to you know to also look at mitch hudson's reports on the ssa contest because he writes pretty well too but uh I'll, i'm gonna try to write on a daily basis oh, so. very cool definitely be and, looking uh, forward to that yeah all right well, well you know that's for... uh yeah Thanks for checking in with us down at the Nationals. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm sure there will be lots of lots more interesting stories to come. So, oh, absolutely, I'm sure. Take care, Daniel. All right. See ya. Thank you for joining us here for another episode of Soaring the Sky. Thank you to our guests who continue to bring us great soaring content for the podcast here. And thank you to our Patreon pilots who continue to financially support the podcast. We do greatly appreciate that. I do want to congratulate Eric Carden, a previous guest here on the podcast, who now has started his journey soaring across America. Quite an interesting and amazing story. And if you want to hear more about that, you can always jump over to episode 88 for his story. So until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring.
If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.